With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Greetings, you've landed at the VUC, IP Communications and VoIP Community. We would like to thank Simwood.com for their support. Simwood can turn you as a developer into a telco. Our hosted PBX is from OnSIP.com, and you can go to GetOnSIP.com for a URL people can click to call you. We've been privileged over the last five years to be using the best conference bridge on the planet. Yes, I'm talking about ZipDX.com, full-color, full-featured, full-HD conference bridge. Our website, VUC.me on the web, is hosted by Bluehost.com. And our worldwide local rate dial-ins are from Voxbone.com. This is VUC 615. Does anybody believe every time I read these numbers, I go, we've done 615 of these? Well, they weren't all video. Anyway, October 14th, 2016. Our guest today, we'll be talking to him in just a second, is Jamie King. And I am a big fan of his podcast. I've been listening to it last, uh, I don't know how many episodes he'll tell us in a second there are, but I've listened to at least 15 of them. Go to that stealthisshow.com and check it out. Jamie, welcome. Really happy to have you with us. Oh, thanks for having me. And we have a funny switching thing here where we're going to put Jamie on. There's the visual of Jamie, but he's also speaking on another computer. And you know that just like you do, we have a little uh, thing here where we ask people a little bit about their life story in a minute or less. So how did you get into all these things before we talk about Steal This Show and your interests? A minute or less. And uh, oh, that was a joke. You can take uh, 20 if you want. Okay, you're not strictly enforcing it. Um, I guess the two, actually, the two things sort of come together. I, I, I had an interest in, um, I was teaching philosophy and uh, to art students, uh, which is a really ignoble profession. And uh, I was also an activist in the area of um, uh, sort of intellectual property, the idea that maybe maybe society would be more interesting if we had a kind of commons of knowledge, you know, sort of equivalent to what free software has provided and maybe maybe sort of something similar in other areas. And I'd written a little bit about that uh, sort of pseudo academically in the UK. And then I decided to make a, I decided I would make a film because I had some money left over. Um, so I, di- I decided to go and interview the Pirate Bay just after their raid and, and sort of treat it like an epochal moment, you know, as if it was Gutenberg's press that had just been tipped over. And uh, and so went and did that. And then and then edited this film in, in well, the entire thing took I think two and a half weeks and um, had no real clue if that was a good amount of time to spend on a film or if that was long or you know um, and decided to just and we released it with the Pirate Bay um, and I remember saying well if we get you know 20,000 people watch this I'll be really pleased and it was sort of I think it was like a couple of million in the first uh, two weeks and then it, it really became a big thing and then so that really launched me on this if it is a path you know this path of uh, 
creating media around the idea of sharing, let's say, um, and around what sharing holds in terms of possibilities for creators. Um, and that, that kind of sums up, if not my life story, then at least the branch that led me to this point. Okay, perfect. Uh, you went over the minutes, so we'll have to charge you for that. Anyway, um, <laughs> <need to> go. <laughs> uh, the fact is we're, Hopefully, I mean, this may be a problem for you, but we're, I'm gonna, we're going to be repeating some of the things that got said on the podcast that I heard, and mm -hmm. certainly we're going to go through those topics. Um, I think that before we do anything else, though, we should talk about the physical layer of this as far as sharing goes, a P2P, torrent, and as I kind of uh, pinged you on, on NZB or NZB also, because that's something that I have used occasionally. Nothing illegal, of course, but uh, <laughs> it's something that still exists. Let's go over the technologies with the disclaimer that we're not, this is not a how-to or anything like that. So we're just going to go through the the various technologies that are available and probably start with, well, I was going to say start with BitTorrent, but start with whatever you like. Uh, so in, in what sense? Available to download, available for sort of audiences stroke consumers to download stuff in which they might be interested or available as in for creators to distribute their work because i think well, isn't, those, those, isn't that the two sides of both of the same this the same thing same not, necess not necessarily because i mean i don't think in fact i think no creators of which i'm aware let's say have made use of for example usenet and or nzb files to distribute their work if there are some i'd be super curious to hear from them but as far as i know nobody i ever heard have said, you know what? I'm going to go straight to Usenet with my movie. Okay, uh, okay, but your your guest uh, Jim Monroe, for example, was big on BitTorrent. He said that he had torrents right. of his. So go ahead. So I'm, I didn't want to interrupt. I just want to say that's the exception. BitTorrent. No, no, no. But Usenet obviously is not BitTorrent. So Usenet is a, is one of the earliest protocols uh, that was uh, it was it was it was running on the on the, on the internet when I first got there, which is getting on some, quite some time ago now. Usenet was active and popular. I think eventually the Usenet archives got bought by Google, um, but it still works, um, if in a bit of a clunky way, but it's completely distinct from the BitTorrent protocol, which was uh, created much later by a guy called Bram Cohen, who is now the CEO, sort of once and future CEO of BitTorrent Inc. And, and BitTorrent, BitTorrent, the protocol, definitely does get used by all kinds of creators to distribute their work. Um, and it really became, it, it really became big. I mean, the dates, let's say in the early 2000s, uh, because it was a kind of it represented a sea change in the way that data was moving around the internet. So that pre-BitTorrent, um, if you'd wanted a file, if, you, if firstly, if you'd wanted to distribute a file as a creator, uh, you would have had, you heard many stories of people racking up big bills, getting their files out to audiences. And from the consumer point of view, if you wanted to download the latest, you know, Matrix 2 or whatever, uh, illegally, uh, you were going to have trouble doing it because everyone wanted a copy of that file and you were hammering some guy's server and it, it was impossible to get it. And when you did get it, it was slow. BitTorrent changed that because with the by having this idea of a swarm in which traffic was offloaded into the swarm and the more people there were with even partial copies of a film or piece of music, the faster you were getting it. It was like a complete paradigm change for downloaders. And as a result, I mean, this can't be overstated how much it changed things over the night for uh, downloaders and uh, that's why it, it that's why it exploded uh, because sheer utility and um, and for creators I think you know there were a few notable early examples of, of uh, shows and media that was created specifically for for BitTorrent um, 
not wanting to claim that distinction for myself, but there was the scene. Uh, the, the scene was a multi-part <clears throat> kind of a film, uh, but really based, mostly based around desktop pictures of video of people's desktops being used uh, and what looked like webcam footage kind of of them working at their at their desktops. And it was about a group of uh, uh, of guys who were, uh, you know, ripping, de- ripping movies illegally and distributing them illegally. And that was called The Scene. And I, I, I think that that was designed to be distributed over BitTorrent, the protocol, and, and was. Um, it, after that, I'm not aware of anybody else who de- who designed a movie specifically to be released over BitTorrent. Um, but but I did. Um, and 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 after I did steal this film, you know, not just releasing it via BitTorrent, but also releasing it with the Pirate Bay, and got all those downloads and all those donations and so on. Um, I think a bunch of artists after that got the idea that it might be something you could do. Um, so yeah, for me that that that's I mean, that's what makes BitTorrent what made it interesting. I think, and it's questionable whether that use that utility for creators and audiences has possibly come to an end uh, in a world of high bandwidth, high cheap bandwidth, and uh, f- almost free storage. Um, this is this is one of the things that you've been talking about in in most of the episodes is where the whole BitTorrent thing is going. And um, so we've mentioned uh, Usenet and NZB. We're probably not that important to get into the actual technology of that except that nzb seems to be a little less detectable would that be accurate only in the sense that um you're it's that classic uh, trade-off where when you join a BitTorrent swarm uh whether it's a legit swarm you know downloading the latest linux iso or a, a non-legitimate quote unquote swarm downloading the latest captain america um your ip address is exposed in a in a in, in a date in an in invisible anyone who's a member of that swarm can see it and for example go along to your isp and say can we have a copy of that guy's uh what if what if you're using your sponsor the vpn people right so that's an example that's so when you use a vpn uh you you essentially offload that problem onto the vpn provider because the only ip address that can be seen at least the, you know to, to somebody joining the swarm is uh is theirs so what you're relying on is that when whoever this uh actor this this threat actor is who comes in to to find out who you are that your vpn provider will say you you can't have that info we don't provide that info that is the same situation with the usenet provider the usenet provider knows your ip it knows it may know a lot about you depending on what they're recording and what they're logging um, is, is and it, i'm your, sorry this- this is another very important point to me, though, is that uh, I would assume that no matter who your VPN is, I mean, I use one, uh, you have one as a sponsor, and there, I'm sure many of them are well-intentioned. But when they receive something from the federal government claiming that you're a terrorist or something, obviously, that's the end of the story, is it not? Um, it depends on the. It depends on who's providing the service. I mean... Um, they claim that there's no logs, for example. I find that a little bit disingenuous in that I'm sure that if they had to know, meaning the FBI or somebody was... It, put, I mean, put tail. it this way. I, it, I thought for quite some time that privacy would be a good business, good, solid business to go into. And a VPN is something that I'd considered doing. And I decided not to purely on the basis that, yeah, I thought that I couldn't, to my standards, you know, honestly say to users that you're safe. Because in the end, that is for, for anybody to make that promise, even if you don't... Even if you ignore the detail of like, well, do they keep logs? What logs are they, you know, would they, would they 
you know, would they start logging you if someone came and told them to, even if they don't keep logs? Even then, if you think you're making yourself safe by using a VPN, like really safe, then you're almost guaranteed to be not safe because there's all sorts of other ways of getting at you, you know? And um, I think you could say this, a VPN is good for casual downloaders to protect themselves from what, you know, 99% of the time amount to trolling attempts to get to extract revenue out of you by troll companies who have nothing to do with whoever made that media and often have literally signed a deal that specifically allows them to troll you. You know, it is a scumbag business and there's no doubt about that. Almost everyone agrees with that. And, you know, you're only protect if you want protection against them, you're probably okay with a- with one of the decent VPNs. And I think that satisfies most people's, you know, uh, needs and-, and-, and most of the time. B- but of course, if you're a tech Technologist or a security person, you will quite reasonably, um, you will quite reasonably uh, retort that you're centralizing the risk, at a central point of failure, which is the VPN provider, and it's a honeypot. And so, you know, you have to be aware of both sides of the argument. But I think that for most people, most of the time, I mean, I'm not advertising uh, private internet access, but. It's, it's almost certain to be good enough for most people most of the time. Right. And uh, also, uh, I would like to talk about uh, the P2P, and I'm going to bring Tim Patton in, but not this minute necessarily. <laughs> but I just want to warn you, Tim, we'd like to talk about uh, the CDNs, the P2P, P2P CDNs, because we're going to talk about peer-to-peer. But before we get into all that, uh, particularly, Jamie, I wanted to talk about some of the interesting concepts that your guests have brought forth and that you've uh, been able to get out of them some of the declarations about piracy, because piracy is one of the big topics I'd like to talk about today. Mm-hmm. And piracy meaning, obviously, downloading the latest Batman versus so-and-so. And, so. and you've had many interesting discussions. And one of the things you mentioned was somebody cited a uh, a Disney, former Disney executive saying, we love piracy or something. And then, you know, Disney obviously uh, wasn't, uh, maybe wouldn't be thrilled with that. Your point was well taken about discovery, but I'd like to go over that again and uh Particularly, I'll repeat one thing that I heard, and then you can take it, um, which was that often uh, there are many free copies of media. Let's take big time like Disney and and Warner Brothers and all that. Um, There are many free copies that are sent out of media. There are many preview things that people have access to online, uh, TV reviewers and so on, movie reviewers. And uh, a lot of that probably does end up as torrents, actually, the ones that aren't marked as such. Um, So, I mean, this is there's a benefit to it. And uh, you also mentioned something about the fact that what you see, the top torrents you see, the top downloads are often just the most popular stuff. So uh, let's let's. Uh, why don't you speak to that a little bit? Because you've got some really interesting thoughts on it. Well, my real question, uh, my real, what I was really, that was the last episode. I think we were we were discussing that, and uh, um, really, what I was wondering, the point to explore um, is if, con- of course, well, like, like what what I call now call the, them is big content. So what big content wants you to believe, and, and probably wants to believe themselves, and it's really understandable, is that every download, every unauthorized download download is a lost sale or, or you know, some propor- some massive proportion of, of unauthorized downloads are a lost sale. And what I was, what I've started to wonder, because there's a correlation between uh, 
movies, the big but blockbuster movies that succeed, succeeding on a scale which is bigger than than ever. You know, m- movies like The Dark Knight and Star Wars, and they're, they're succeeding on such a gigantic scale now. And so it occurred to me, well, may- maybe not only are they wrong <laughs> about each unauthorized copy being a lost set, you know, detracting from their, you know, their their revenue uh, bottom line, but what if we're actually doing the work of of big content of Hollywood by, you know, okay, I'm not going to go and see this episode of Star Wars, whatever, but I'll download it. I watch it. I share it with my friends. And I, it, it sort of grabs a bit of my mind share and my friend's mind share. It's, bra- it's branded. It's in a way it becomes part of my life because I didn't have to pay for it. I was never in the market to pay for that episode. But then the next one rolls around and it's like they couldn't have paid for what I did for them, which is I downloaded it. I watched it. I told my friends. I did things that they couldn't have paid me to do and I did them free. And now I'm a customer. And I just was wondering out loud if perhaps underneath all the rhetoric, some bright spark, like, you know, EMI, Sony Pictures, whatever, had figured this one out. Um, and if, you know, I guess it's like a non-provable argument at the moment, but but that maybe there was some correlation between the rise in the massive popularity of these, of these uh, big franchises and the fact that keeping them in the public consciousness has never been easier and cheaper. I have but- a cup. I have a couple of things to add to that I didn't hear on your podcast, Jamie. And one, by the way, Michael Graves says adding brand value. And that's kind of what you're saying, if not revenue. Two things. First of all, think about merchandise because a lot of bands and a lot of content providers of all kinds uh, make more money on the merch than they do on the actual object. So uh, official Star Wars t-shirts and so on, since that was your example, is one thing. And um, the other is... uh, I lost the thread, but there's a there's a similar idea there. Yeah, yeah. Is, sure. No, I, mean, I think that the only radical thing I'm saying that hasn't maybe been said before is: look, could you just flip it and actually say you're doing the work of big content? You you think this is counterculture, but it's not counterculture. You're just you're distributing their content, sure, for free, but you're also watching it for free, and you're making yourself into future customers. I mean, there, there's lots of examples of this in history, right? That like dominant culture like the USA when it started to become a net exporter of culture exported a lot of its content to Asia for free because it was like seen as a way of establishing a good footprint and it and it and it and it ensured that future generations of people in Asia and so on right up to now actually right up until China pushing back on this see the most desirable stars and the most desirable uh, movies as being Hollywood movies as being American movies and that's not an accident that was part of a strategy and so could it could not the same thing be in operation now you know and if so yeah. should france be distributing its films this way you know a statist entity you know should the uk be distributing its film films this way could we be doing the same thing and why aren't we why, why we are have we, a, we have a problem though. we have a problem in, in the way we calculate value right because people calculate value on the basis of revenue streams and while they talk a lot about brand value as an asset it's oftentimes unrealized and so what you're saying is true you have these sort of informal processes that add value to the brand that are in essence subsidizing the marketing efforts of these other organizations right but yet those organizations are measured and judged on their revenue streams and so because there's at least a couple of levels of indirection there it's kind of hard 
to see how they would be linked in a more direct and trackable fashion. We, we, have an, we have an idea for a podcast, Jamie, called Shit Chrome Broke This Week. And one of the things, <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, one of the things was Michael. And now you sound normal, Michael. Uh, the thing that I lost in my head, um, Jamie, that I was about to say, the other branch of my thought was that uh, Turner Classic Movies and other cable channels that do nothing but show movies. If you think about it, right before the new Superman comes out, they will be, you know, pushing the other one, the older ones. Uh, Netflix does that too. And I think a lot of that thought goes into it. And uh, I do a little bit of uh, throwing up images, a couple images from TV shows, for example. And there are 250,000 people looking, potentially, anyway, looking at the collection that I do this in. So, And you mentioned yourself that you may be doing a service by telling people about it. So I couldn't agree more about that part of, of your uh, what you've been saying. And I think it's interesting that uh, your last guest, Jim Monroe, was very pro-sharing and mentioned that he started his whole business, his, his whole uh, writing part uh, by, I think he said it was a torrent, his first uh, book, right? No, no. His first book was uh, a Rupert Murdoch company. I've forgotten what the name of his company was, but it right. was uh, he had his first novel published. Collins, by- Harper Collins. Right, and uh, and he did it did okay and everything, but he he then went on to self distribute, and I guess he came to the realization that a lot of independent creators come to, which is that um, sharing is not your problem. Did uh, if, if if you've got you know, I mean, I've got to say I'm guilty of having squandered the vast majority of the people who downloaded steal this film one, two, and two point five. I was so vehemently against all that. Give us your email shit. That kind of like put your email in here and I'll bother you three times a week about I I just didn't want to do any of that stuff um but i think if i had i would be in a great position <laughs> um to to be able to capitalize on on the sort of footprint that steal this film uh created and i think what jim's very much from a culture where it's kind of like you maintain and build your audience and your relationship with your audience and that is done through various acts of of generosity giving away samples whole books old books you know um chapters uh and 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 so it's it's very familiar to him as a model plus it sounded like he's a downloader as well so i think um for someone that i suspect is not i don't want to speak for jim but i suspect isn't watching a lot of mainstream stuff the internet and torrents are also a really important way to get to especially now with all the indie cinemas closing down um massive consolidation in the media uh you know netflix doesn't have a wonderful array of of stuff despite what they tell you it's shrinking <laughs> um torrents and and you know finding stuff online becomes really really important for creators like jim in terms of finding their inspirations so i think it's partly a sort of cultural thing um and partly to do with where he will have found his best success with his audiences and as far as writing goes by the way a lot of people are using Medium in that same way because writing doesn't require any big download thing, you know. So you you could write a book on Medium. Uh, not that people do. What they generally do is share chapter by chapter. Sometimes they leave it up temporarily and so on. But uh, Jim himself uh, wrote, I believe, wrote or created some kind of software platform uh, to do that as well. I briefly dipped into it, but I didn't find it particularly compelling. But it, oh, it's great. Cool. Well, it, there's a specific um, uh, story behind that, uh, which is that um, there's been. I mean, I don't know whether you obviously you're sort of familiar with Dungeons and Dragons, and I don't know 
know whether you're familiar with uh, those early choose your own adventure books where you used to flip through and, and choose branch points in the narrative by flicking to certain pages. Um, they were kind of cool. And kids like those. I grew up with those kinds of those kinds of books. And uh, essentially what Jim's doing is, is enabling a specific narrative form, which used to be called hypertext, hypertext. Back in the day, uh, there was there was a couple of writers who wrote hypertext fiction. I, I forget their names. Um, uh, and maybe there was a Joyce, someone Joyce, who did a big hypertext fiction called An Afternoon, maybe was one of the big examples. I can't remember now offhand, but um, what what uh, Jim is doing is creating software that enables writers to produce these, uh, these what they now call interactive fiction. And uh, the advantage for writers might be that those are seen as games by cast by audiences. So you can like get your way into games, uh, the games world um, while being a lowly writer without needing, you don't need to code uh and 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 it's something that that is people treat they play it like a game rather than thinking about it as a book so i was just kind of interested you know in, in the sense that it maybe opens up new possibilities for creators um hey, that, we, that's 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 the nature we have uh, i have another um completely well related comment but uh, we've got uh, tim here who has some questions and comments so We'll turn it over to him. Hi, uh, yeah, no, I was I was just thinking that the, the piece that sort of feels a little um, kind of missing from that discussion is about control. I mean, it feels to me like the, one of the reasons that that you know big media is is so um, anti-torrent is that they're not in control of the distribution. They don't feel like it's it's in their hands anymore, and and that prevents them from adding advertising to it, which you know in addition was one of the reasons why it took off was that like you didn't have all of this I mean I still every time I make the mistake of putting a DVD in, in a DVD drive I have apoplexy at being forced to watch an advert for a movie that I have already seen um, and don't wish to see again because it was crap and but I can't skip it I you know that 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 is the I mean I actually do not buy DVDs specifically because I know that every time I use them they make me apoplectic so that kind of that join between control and and the ability to insert advertising well the ultimate control is, is I was going to say the F word uh, regions I mean the, who no, has right, right 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 <laughs> so, so exactly I mean I think it's it, it feels to me like part of the kind of you know visceral we have to stop this thing is around that that sense of feeling like they, they need to be in control of yeah of no definitely and, and I think uh, my position in Steal This Film, although I think it got more nuanced later, uh, was often mischaracterized as being a kind of, um, you know, torrents are, torrents are right because sharing is great and, you know, screw you, big content, and we're going to do what we want anyway. I think actually it was even at the start a more nuanced perspective th than that, which essentially said, you know, control is, control is a nice thing to have if you can get it. And, uh, you know, when even at the start of the printing press, they have problems problems with, with people copying Gutenberg's books, but there was obviously much less potential to copy them because paper is more expensive, the press is more expensive, you can't reproduce printing presses endlessly at zero cost, the books have to be physically moved from one person to another, etc., etc. There's all these limitations uh, that, that allow control to, to emerge. Control is a property of that technology, whereas you, know, you can take the books and lock them up in a warehouse and they won't magically multiply into 10 million books while you're not looking and right. shoot off 
to everyone in Paris to be read. So clearly control is something you can expect. And if someone breaks into your warehouse and steals all your books, you can say that mustn't happen again. Let's get bigger locks and so forth. And that's all I would say that that's all reasonable. And my point really was steal this film. And, and, and from then on was, well, what happens if if something changes in that world that means the books can suddenly multiply from being 10,000 copies to 60 billion copies in the twinkling of an eye free? What if you can no longer lock them in warehouses because they just get up and walk off and deliver themselves to whoever wants them at zero cost? Are you still, is it still legitimate to, comp- to constantly ask for extra control? Is it still legitimate to say, well, what we're going to, for example, what we're going to do to stop people getting at these books is lock you in your house. We're going to lock you all in your houses and stop, you know, or whatever. We're going to keep asking for more and more things. And you say, no, the fundamentals of the world changed around you and they make the kind of control you had previously impossible. And in order to instantiate a world in which you get that control back, you're essentially essentially going to have to produce something that looks like totalitarianism. Mm -hmm. You, you, You want to have sight over everything everyone downloads and they do and they want to have access to every IP of everybody's using the internet and they want to have the right to turn off web pages what I would say arbitrarily based on the content they have and all of those things are and have been used for to create to to, to seed political control to gain political control and so my argument wasn't really well whether it's right or wrong that that control has gone but that it has in some fundamental way the conditions that produced it have changed and the the only elegant way to respond is to ask, well, how can we fund culture differently then? Well, and, and that brings me to my, my my other thing, which was like really interesting experiment in in kind of played out in this space is, is the BBC and iPlayer because iPlayer originally was P2P torrent mm-hmm. technology and that didn't take off because I, it didn't need to it didn't have the like there was no advertising to avoid it, it was like you know it was free to download anyway so like kind of a couple of the P2P drivers weren't there and it was actually worked fine if you just ran it in a browser so so they they, they kind of got pushed into the direction which they hadn't you know I know some of the people who were peripherally involved in that and, and like, they thought that it was was going to be a torrent solution and they built this torrent solution and yeah, not so much yeah i don't know why, i don't know I, I can't think of a reason that they would have done that except that except to offload which which could have been quite a big reason could right. still be quite a big reason to offload the costs of distributing the content onto the people of britain because because one of the fun ways that i always thought looking at deal this film uh and the fact that it reached however many million people and didn't cost me anything uh and the same with the platform i created vodo to do the same thing for other creators was that you're leveraging the uh, latent uh, unused value in people's domestic ADSL connections. So you've paid your $40 a month or your £25 or whatever you've paid for your, you know, up to 40 mega, mega megabits and your uh you know with your cap or whatever you and and you don't use and most most people don't use it and suddenly you're saying oh could you put this to work on behalf of you know steal this film or a, a, a another creator and that that's it it's not actually free you're just leveraging you're leveraging sort of unused bandwidth unused uh, capacity that the that people have already paid for and uh, and the BBC may have had someone thinking along those lines uh, uh, you know, we don't need to. Why do we need to pay for a massive data center and give all that money to Amazon when we could just like download the client to to, to every household that wants it and have them share it? Uh, uh, I, I mean, I think that was a that was a big piece of it, and I think also um, that they, you know, it was a more interesting technological way to do it. 
Um, I think there might may well have been an element of like, hey, this will be more fun. Um, yeah, and there was like a discourse. Uh, I mean, not that I know the BBC very well. I did consult a little bit on the um, on the, the charter renewal. Um, but uh, other than that, I think that there was some elements at that time in the BBC that were into that whole Creative Commons sharing, open source. BitTorrent obviously is an open source protocol uh so that would have been something they would have been able to access i don't know whether they use BitTorrent or whether they were using something else underlying it but um so i guess the culture was there at the time and i don't know why they stopped using it and maybe you do but um seems to me that it would have been at least some of the same reasons that i thought it just got less interesting as a protocol which is that um bandwidth just got a hell of a lot cheaper and storage got a lot cheaper. So at some point you say, what's the point? Like, what's even the point of downloading something anymore? Like, uh, you know, most things that you want to see, you can stream them and you you don't even care anymore that something is 750 megabytes, 750 megabytes. And compression got a lot better, you know, a lot better. So the new HEVC compression is like, I know it sounds like an episode of Silicon Valley, but it's squeezed files down so much that <laughs> those basic conditions have changed again. We're in pipe, pipe, Orlando. Is it a, still a requirement to be in the United Kingdom, have an IP from the UK to watch uh, using the BBC player? Or what's the story there? Because you can it, use the VPN. Well, I mean, obviously, and uh, I, I tried it and it did work. I mean, I got all that stuff working because it's just fun to do that. I never did pursue much of it. Um, I'd like to, if unless somebody wants to continue this, I'd like to move to an adjacent topic, which has to do with how we're financing, how people are going to finance this stuff and the future of it. Because we've talked about, or you have, I'm sorry, on the podcast, talked to people about ads. And again, the latest guest, Jim Monroe, mentioned uh, financing with ads. Now, when I go to the United States, I occasionally turn on the TV where we stay. And um, generally, television that's non-cable has become like if you watch something like NYPD Blue, which is a 42-minute, they're all about 42, 43 minutes long. They, they're in an hour space. There's a commercial every scene, and they're made for that. So that's you know all well and good, but they're unwatch completely unwatchable for me. So the only other solution is, in fact, to look at downloaded files or stream them somehow, uh, although streaming has some ads less. Uh, but, but what's the future? I mean, because there's ad blockers, there's there's all kinds of ways to get around this. So how is this stuff? Is Patreon <laughs> going to be the ultimate solution? I mean, that works for a podcast, but it's not going to work for anything. Uh, it's not going to scale. So how, where is this thing going? Yeah, I mean, I'd be lying if I said I know the answer to that. I think there were too many things that I didn't see coming in this space. You know, I, I started Vodo before Kickstarter. And I honestly never believed that people would just stump up money for something that didn't exist yet. At that point, I was thinking, no, 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 quite clearly you need to have made something before people will give you money for it. Who would believe somebody who's... And I was 100% completely wrong. People prefer to give money to something that doesn't exist because they can't yet see its limitations. And that just had not occurred to me. There was also the whole thing of... Uh, of uh, Patreon, we had a Patreon-like function on Vodo at one point. And again, I just, I didn't believe that enough assets could be delivered by creators to audiences such that you could make an audience feel that they wanted to support that person. But I don't think I predicted the degree of, um, of, 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 uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Deep and depersonalization, but the way in which all relationships have become mediated via the internet uh, to such an extent that it's now completely normal to believe that you could know someone through a web page. I mean, obviously you could say, yes, I've got a deep intimate connection with this artist because that's what you have on Facebook. So I keep missing things all the time. So you should not ask me what the future is because I mess up all the time. But in fact, what's interesting is the next show 
of Steelless uh, show, which we're editing at the moment, is with two guys who've got a startup in this space. It's called Yours Network, yours.network. And uh, they are, I mean, they are using trying to use Bitcoin to uh, in, to reward, to remunerate creators, uh, sort of microtransactions. So it's a similar space to something like Flatter, F-L-A-T-T-R, which was started by one of the guys from the Pirate Bay and a couple of other dudes. And that was microtransactions. Um, and their model, I don't know how much you want me to go into it stop me if it gets long but their no, model no. is uh is is interesting because it because it essentially says i would get we, we would both get rewarded as being the creators of our respective shows if if we posted them on 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 yours network uh but equally someone who finds the show one of the shows and says hey this is a great show and posts it up they can get a reward if that then goes on to be uh rewarded by other uh users of the system so it's kind of like a sort of benign Ponzi scheme. Uh, they would hate me for saying that, but like I'm not one of their. I I'm not the, them, so I can say that in the nicest way. It's kind of got Ponzi elements to it. So you, so that solves the problem of how do you get people to give a shit about new content, about new stuff that they haven't been told to like by someone with a lot of money. And of course, one of the ways is you can create a kind of entrepreneurialism around it. So it's like I found the latest episode of Steal This Show, and you know, so that that's a fun thing, and. We'll We'll see how that one pans out. Um, Actually, haven't haven't there been a bunch of networks based on uh, certain things that you can do and you gain points and so on? I think that that's not super new. No, um, I don't think it is complete. No, I don't think it's new. I mean, obviously, we're at a phase now. And, and sorry, guys, if you listen to this, I don't mean this in a mean way, but a lot of things are being reinvented with like right. blockchain stapled onto them, and, and you know, <laughs> and that that is. Uh, <coughs> look, the truth is, the honest truth is, I don't think there's any way to magic, magic us back to the situation where, okay, the situation never existed that all content creators were getting paid fairly for their work. So that's one thing. Never, never did exist. And people are still making money from content. And the the, this, this uh, what do they call it, disruption that has occurred has allowed new players into the market and some of them are making money in, in various interesting new ways that I happen to have missed all of them. <laughs> uh, but, you know, and new ones will new ones will arise. Actually, the what I'm interested in at the moment is a different question. I've concluded that the big thing that's missing for, for independent creators is the big question that needs to be solved is how do you get attention for what you're doing? That to me is more important than the money question at the moment. So mm -hmm. that's what I'm working on personally. Very true. Well, that's why you're here, Jamie, to get exposure among the 10 people who are listening to us. Uh, I kid because we actually have a lot more people that are interest, interested in what we do. Um, I just want to mention a couple of things. I'm pretty sure that, uh, and now I can't remember his name, Tom Merritt. You know Tom Merritt who was on uh, the old paradigm of podcasts with... Um, no, uh, I, don't, I don't know Tom okay. Well, anyway, he's uh, very well liked and, and and those guys, I'm pretty sure that in there, I haven't actually kept up with it, so I can't tell you the name of it or anything, but um, it's he was an offshoot from Twit. You must have heard of Twit. That's yeah. one of the huge empire of podcasting. And uh, Tom Merritt was one of the more personable and very clever guy. And anyway, his newest show is on Patreon. I, I'm pretty sure that they have several thousand a month coming in to pretty much help them finance. I don't know that anybody's, you know, 
buying Mercedes or anything, but should they? Should no, they? Uh, you know. I, think, look, well, I mean, there is a great model, like like having a Patreon and uh, you know doing a serialized podcast. This that's brilliant, brilliant for podcasters. Like I, I'm, I would give it. I've got a sort of desultory version of that going on stealthisshow.com where people can sub- subscri- subscribe and we and we'll we'll name check them on the show and then then try and figure out some goodies to give them as well. Don't know what those are going to be yet. Um, got a few people subscribing. Um, why not? That's a great mo- model. Um, I think that's workable. I don't think it's workable for making Spider-Man movies, no. prob- probably, <laughs> but uh, but that's okay by me. I don't think, and because the Spider-Man guys, as it turns out, they're okay yeah. because uh, you know we're all downloading their stuff and filling our minds full of full of hot, full of superhero tat, such as that we adult babies who are only too happy to go and shed ten, twelve dollars to go and watch you know more Spider-Man or, or Wolverine or whatever. It's been a great success, <laughs> you know, for them. Have you looked yeah. at how um, how people like Pando are trying to do uh, reporting yeah. and how, to, how they're trying to get paid for that? And, uh, and, you know, this sort of just basically experimenting with subscription models and but still trying to kind of leak out word of mouth and, and this kind of stuff. It's interesting. I mean, you know, it's it's the it's the money side of this question like how do they get paid enough to pay, send reporters to stupid places without having to to take sponsorship directly from the people they want to report on Totally. But again, it's another of those questions that isn't as simple as it looks in the sense that, you know, what did we have before the era, before this era or the era into which we're entering? You know, we've had a press where the vast majority of what we're seeing is controlled by PR agencies, either for governments or for or for corporations. And I know this because when I, I started trying to do a startup in the kind of new space, this is ages ago, and we 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 um we we wanted to we wanted to rule out duplicates of of particular news items so we wanted close cousins to be ruled out so we would say all of these articles that are an example of this subject so we computed we did little uh script that would analyze similarity and we discovered that like in a given day every single paper was 70% similar in terms of the words that were in there and there was no exceptions and you must know about this stuff, right? So there's this guy, Nick Davis, who wrote this book. I think it's called The Flat Earth News. Uh, he's a really great British journalist and, uh, you know, really worth looking at if you want to be shocked about what the state of news was before and how news was funded before. And the fact that, no, there was no functional fourth estate, I mean, before now. You know, whatever we had had been captured. And so when you're thinking about, oh, well, how can we fund, what you're asking is, how can we fund an idealized notion of what news was? It didn't exist. You know, he points out that, for example, none of the big TV stations, actually, most of them didn't even have stringers in most of the key locations in the world. They just faked it. They just fake it by having them stand in front of a minaret or whatever somewhere and do you know what I'm saying like it's that thing about you don't yes we should ask how can we fund quality journalism but at the same time we should realize we weren't funding much quality journalism up till now I I mean I think I think that's that's true to an extent but I think what you're you're maybe eliding from then and true for the national press in particular but I think maybe less true for the for the local press which which historically had had this this huge pile of money from class ads yeah which they could then spend on people to send to council meetings and 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 you know cover local stories and now that 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 economy is simply doesn't work for them and yeah. and and I think in in 
that space, which is actually more amenable to the kind of, you know, kind of thing you're talking about of, of being like, well, not citizen journalism, but, you know, uh, actually um, local news wanted by and provided for and by and around local people. That actually, you could imagine some kind of construct in the way that you're talking about that would work for that, that people would, you know, subscribe to the local newspaper because they wanted it to come to their school sports day or, you know. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it's, it, it was a function that, that newspapers used to cover and that that's by the way it, it, not to go on about nick's book but i don't know nick by the way but if that it, it, there's a long section about uh nick davis about the uh about the demise of local reporting um and it's not it's not because of the internet uh that that, that happened hasn't twitter pretty much replaced that anyway the, the problem with the twitter and the, not the twitter but the the, <laughs> the twitters i should say and the you know all of the various things that you see from people who are even on a scene you know suppose there's some incident someplace but i mean that reporting isn't checked and it isn't uh any more accurate than mainstream reporting so th it's it's quite a compromise but at least it isn't supported by vested interests in general although you have the the uh subjectivity of the person reporting and also their own ignorance if somebody's at a shooting for example they're only seeing one part of it they're not up in a helicopter but so you know we've gained it's like uh two steps back two steps forward and three back maybe yeah i mean I think Twitter is like many steps forward. I'm a bit, I, you know, in terms of Twitter as a source for breaking news, opinions, you being able to, being able to delve into the weird bubbles that exist, you know, the, the for example, this whole neo-reactionary alt-right thing, you right. can just, you can just dive in and get a look at what these lunatics are <laughs> talking about, you know, and it's like, that's amazing. There was no way you could do that before. I think that with the local news thing, it was mostly Craigslist that decimated them. Hmm. Not, not, I mean, that's still an internet startup but it's a funny one because it's kind of like a an uninternet-y internet thing yeah because uh, you know but but still yeah, it's not it's not like it's not like any news source came in and replaced local news it's just that their revenue model disappeared and so they don't classifies don't work anymore um, you know jamie uh, on this topic uh there's a book written by a comedian named Jimmy Dore that is called Your Country Just Isn't that in, isn't Into You That Much Anymore. Or something <laughs> like that. The point being, <clears throat> anyway, it's about the history of media. And basically, I boil it down to a couple of sentences. Uh, you may know that on Sunday morning, there are shows like Meet the Press in the United States. And, you know, Meet the Press continuously has, even to this day, their guests are people like Dick Cheney, who, you know, for the average person, particularly left-leaning, is, you know, what is this guy doing even? Why are you giving him a microphone even? You know, uh, some people would like to see those those guys on trial but that my point isn't political here it's simply that the sponsors of these shows as you see, if you watch them even for 10 seconds there's going to be a commercial and the commercial is going to be basically government contractors yeah uh, so the transparency there is is so incredible but here's the thing nobody watches those shows anyway so i mean it's kind of a funny it's like they're leaving the trail of breadcrumbs and yet i'm not sure what benefit they get out of it other than the people who watch it with their own confirmation bias you know so anyway the press the media which has let's put it this way too without naming any names the media just over the last year or two created a monster now they're trying to destroy it i mean media is a problem so the internet has gone some ways to helping that situation i would say because as you just said you can get on twitter you can watch things like the Arab spring and and you just have to weigh the authenticity of the comments because uh i've also been told by someone who i totally believe because i know what what he's been through that there's an awful lot of state trolls on the internet. These are people who 
are not only paid, but probably would be in jail if they weren't trolling on certain topics. Oh yeah, and and not just for uh, not just for the United States, but for, for uh, China is the one that's really doing this. I was referring to other countries, oh, yeah. definitely. Yeah, yeah China, I mean, there's case maybe. Yeah, but, really. But they, oh, no, China course. and Russia. Of course, the United States is doing it, but the China yeah. is the one that is the is the like. Why would you not do it? If right. It's really cheap. You could probably hire these people via Amazon Mechanical Turk. Or it's whatever. just like spam. And he, no in fact, probably somewhere there's a guy or girl inputting both conservative rhetoric and totally. Marxist rhetoric at the same time. Like yeah. what? Going like, oh, hang on. What have I got to put in now? <laughs> I've got to go for the like switching from neo-reactionary to, you know, because that, 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 we you know, in some center somewhere where it's like, no, no, we give good rhetoric. It doesn't matter what that's it's what like. We, that's what we do. Uh, so yeah, for sure that's happening. But I was just musing on this this morning. You know, I probably haven't got very far with it. So apologies in advance, but it's kind of odd to reflect that with all of the things that Silicon Valley and the kind of Californian, what would you call them, libertarian progressives, all of the, the all the cant about how much their how much access to information is imp- going to improve the world and make it like even for the Ayn Randian ones like more rational. You know, like but what's actually happening is the inverse. The more access there is to opinion and information, the more we're entering into this kind of black, unknowable, what was that medieval theologian, the, the, the cloud of unknowing, you know, we're moving into this this unknowable world in which it's like, oh, well, was 9-11 a put up job? Well, have you got seven years? To, to investigate this because you know otherwise just pick your answer did OJ do it well we got we, 17 books six films plus 10 forums you know the disappearance of, of uh, you know making a murderer guy like did he do it well I've now got 200 pages of evidence for you to sift through WikiLeaks like you know illegal invasion of Iraq WMDs did Saddam Hussein have them well there's a thousand word report leaked by and there's Cheney's emails and then there's and you and you literally reach this point where you can't know anything. I'm and still so, working on on what the ending of Lost meant. Right, and that too, <laughs> and that too. And then, and in that world, someone like Trump can do really well because he knows that you don't know anything. He knows that your grip on reality is extremely tentative. And he can come in and say, that's not true. I think this, this is going to happen. China. And, and sort of, he just has that boldness and that assertion that people can just grip onto and say, you know, I'm ontologically insecure and this guy at least looks like he means it. I mean, it is like that banal, isn't it? You, yep. you know, I'm, I told you I hadn't got very far with that thought, but that's that's the gist of it. No, no, that's a, that's an excellent thought, and it's a good thought for the day because this is how uh, there's just so much talk. There is there is so much noise about the election, and believe me, I mean, I already voted. I'm hoping it'll be counted. I haven't seen that confirmation yet, but um, I'm so sick of seeing. And I have begged people on the social media that I am on. I've told people, stop publishing those things. I don't care who you're for. It doesn't matter. You're just playing to confirmation bias. Whatever you're putting up there just looks like the right thing to everybody because they have this confirmation bias and they read it as, hey, that's great. You know, whatever he or she said, uh, yeah. one the one side will go, that's horrible, uh, that person should be in jail. And the other side goes, hey, that's fantastic. I want and that it, person. And maybe even one step, one step more idiotic than that is that we're so overloaded with information, you know, just so completely overloaded and, and unable to form opinions on anything mm-hmm. that the more you see a creature waved in front of your face, the more you see that puffy-faced orange baboon looking, <laughs> not to be mean to baboons, <laughs> 
awful <laughs> thing wobbling around in front of your face. It's like brand recognition, and yep. you just your hand is more likely to like jolt over to the to the Trump box, you know, <laughs> no. like a sort of you know because that's how that's. How how dumb we are. And it's like, you know, all the things that were supposed to make us clear, like Elon Musk and all those people quite clearly believe that the apotheosis of human culture is going to occur when we're completely connected to the internet. Like with a straight face, he and his other nerds are talking mm-hmm. about that the, uh, the but one barrier between us and becoming superhuman is a faster pipe between our brain and the internet. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think it's like all the evidence points exactly in the other direction, which is that we've got too much to listen to, too much to read, too much to look at, and we can't make any opinions about anything anymore. So true. I'm going to ask for questions <laughs> for, for Jamie or for anybody else who's available, although um, most of our panel had to run off one to pick up a daughter, and looks like Tim had to answer a phone call or something. I see an empty room. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I know I've already seen some compliments on IR- IRC, uh, Jamie, and I, I knew it was an inspiration to have you on. And this is fascinating. It really is. I didn't and scare I, them off. I think I scared them off. They no, got no, no. the way one by one. No, they have good excuses. We, we, I'm, <laughs> I'm giving them the hall pass. Uh, anyone else on IRC, if you say so, or Michael? Michael's, uh, if he solved his Cylon problem, he's here, but uh, not sure if he's listening. Looks like not. Uh, there was a, there was a, actually an interesting point that I know nothing about, which is YouTube Red. We, when we were talking about uh, monetizing and so on, and I, I know what it is, um, being in Europe, and you are too, so you know we don't necessarily have access to that yet, or it's brand new. Uh, do you know anything about, uh, about YouTube Red? I only know that the frequency of adverts has definitely been going up. Uh-huh. And so I wondered why. So I found myself, which is when I was trying to watch the, the, the Trump, uh, so-called Trump-Clinton debate, if you call that a debate. Well, that was on YouTube, Red? No, it was just on YouTube, but I was trying to watch the the debate and um, it just kept interrupting every three minutes with an advert. And then I thought, this didn't, YouTube didn't used to do that. And then I realized, like, they've inserted the adverts to make you trade up to what they're calling YouTube Red. So it's like, oh, we've now made our product more annoying. And if you want it to go back to being less annoying, you can pay for YouTube Red. And I assume that they will sweeten it. Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. And that they will then start using the revenue to start acquiring content that they will make gradually try to compete with uh, maybe maybe they will start mm-hmm. to try to compete with uh, Netflix. Speaking of Netflix, Jamie, one thing, and I, I meant to insert this and uh, somebody else said something. Uh, we were talking about Netflix. Netflix's movie catalog is pretty abysmal. Um, their television thing is variable, a little like Hulu. But one thing I do like, I am a Hulu, I am a, sorry, I am a Netflix subscriber. I did subscribe to Hulu Plus for about 10 seconds, but I didn't find it worth it. But the, what I do approve of with Netflix and would like to push for is their original content. At Admittedly, it's not all great, but they do enough good stuff to me. I feel it's worth the nine or ten dollars, whatever it is a month. Like the HBO model. Yeah. And I also am on HBO, even though legally I'm not. Well, according to their rules, I shouldn't be seeing it over here. Of course, I watch it on our vacation place because I use my laptop there. Point being, though, this is a model that does work for me. And if you choose if because look at how narrow in a sense, particularly HBO, they're very high quality. Most of their shows are things that I would watch, not necessarily every single thing I'm passionate about, but they have a pretty good signal-to-noise ratio. Netflix, I don't care for any of the stuff that they just happen to have. 
I don't watch any of it. Um, something like The West Wing, I just bought the DVDs years ago and I've watched mm-hmm. them 70 times, you know. Uh, but as far as um, their original stuff, they have produced a lot of good, I think more than enough for the eight bucks a month or whatever it is. So for over the year, if you look at it that way. Yeah, so, and it's not, and it's also a tactical thing for them because, you know, the, the the obviously the original content has no, they own it and so they get to choose right. how they distribute it and that the real issue for Netflix and what's g- going to be giving them trouble is they are essentially they and Amazon Prime um, and maybe to an extent Voodoo are fighting a battle against the way the business used to be done in terms of acquiring and distributing content. The way you used to acquire and distribute content was territory by territory and mm-hmm. so when you would buy you know you would go to a content aggregator a sort of stu- either a studio or a sales agent that had acquired some, some bunch of st- stuff that had been made and you would acquire their content for a specific territory and of course what Netflix and Amazon Prime and the rest of them want is global rights. They just want to be able to show it to everyone because it doesn't make any sense to anybody anymore except those incumbent actors that things should be siloed territorially. And so what the game at this stage is, can they amass enough of the audience, enough of the global mindshare that they can go to those uh, incumbent actors who are, of course, immensely powerful and say, look, just distribute just, just distribute it to every territory all at once. Um, and the answer at the moment is they clearly can't because you frequently see content that you're watching in one territory disappear when you when you fly to another territory so your netflix product is not consistent it's a it's broken by design not by netflix's design but by the people who made the content design and, and so there was when, a- they, when they make their own stuff they don't have to comply with those uh rules or those uh traditions and so as a result they they get much they get much better use out of the content so i think they'll be making stuff much more often often i think what you're seeing is their catalog shrinking um because a lot of those 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 old actors those those large big content people are saying hang on a minute we're enabling a monster that is forcing us to change our that is ultimately going to have the power to force us to change our business model and they don't want that so well, I, I, I think that they, more content from them. i i do think that they're going the uh, dinosaurs are going to have to change it may not be tomorrow but it, the, this all is going to move that way there's a uh, probably what should be maybe the last question because we need to do another one of these, Jamie. We'll do it uh, whenever you're ready. Okay. Uh, the question is about Netflix re- releasing the whole season at once. It is an interesting thing that uh, both Netflix and Amazon, I think, uh, some things, some properties, they just dump the 10 or 13 episodes all at once. And I believe Amazon does some that sometimes. Uh, and uh, sometimes they de- they uh, deal them out one per week. Uh, any opinion on that? And and also, second part of that question is what, ha- what would happen to broadcast TV one day? What Or will that happen on broadcast TV one day? That I don't think so. Or will it still be weekly shows? I think broadcast will always be weekly shows with ads. Uh, but what about this whole season at once? Do you like that? I mean, as for me, you know, I, I think binge viewing, <clears throat> if it was Netflix that started binge viewing, uh, that would make sense because I think that they're a very internet-y company. I think mm-hmm. that they, they have internet-y instincts and backgrounds rather than, you know, rather than being TV people. And certainly there was an early behavior amongst, uh, you know, pirates 
to download you know entire seasons of of shows or three seasons at once and then and then watch them continuously until you were sick you know that, that was that was something that people were doing and i guess that netflix had seen that as a behavior and i guess that when you can start engaging audiences in new behaviors whereby they will go and report you know at the proverbial water cooler oh my god i totally binged out on uh, yeah. the good wife because it's like a peak experience for them either in terms of horror at their own sloth slothy behavior or in terms of you know just how great this weekend was that i did nothing except you know and if they can get people talking then then that is subscribers that that is you know that increases their footprint that that's other people wanting to engage in what is a new behavior you know and that so that's working for them at the moment will will it go on i don't know i mean i guess some people will do it i don't do it a lot anymore except when i get completely addicted to something quite rare um but then i'm watching a ton of shows so i kind of can't do it Mm -hmm. because otherwise uh it would just all my viewing schedule would be decimated um in terms of broadcast TV, I don't know. I think they've done stuff like that in the past. I think there's been marathons. Um, but those are reruns, though. So. Right, yes. In terms of doing original content, it doesn't really fit with the broadcast model, does it? Which is to to, to, to extend and sort of uh, eke out as much value as possible from the tiniest bit of, co- the tiniest shred of content that they've got, especially in the States. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, more and more TV just looks like, broadcast TV just looks like a wasteland. Yeah. I mean, when you actually turn it on and look at what's on the channel firstly it looks idiotic you know i can remember going in for a meeting with a friend of mine who's now uh, one of the bosses of channel 4 television in in the uk and he's a great guy you know and he's smart as well but then he was saying he he was i was saying there's no reason anymore why don't you just just sell channel 4's uh bandwidth just sell their frequency that they are allowed to transmit over sell their digital chat and just put it all on the internet and let people watch whatever they want whenever they want and he turned to me and he said you know it's still really important that everyone watch is the news at the same time and i was like really like you you really think that that's important but in a way it's an interesting thing to say because it reveals what is maybe the last remaining function of television which Mm. is that it provides a synchronicity that we can all time ourselves around that we all sort of get synced to the what did twilight zone call it the horizontal and the vertical (laughs) you know what i mean yeah Um, except that uh those of us you know we're on different sides of the world so that's not gonna we're not gonna be i can't i can't go uh join the tweet unless I stay up in the middle of the night no, and, right. and I find a way to see. No, um, I did. I stayed up till half past three in the morning to listen to the second debate. Oh, I, I can only take those digested <laughs> by somebody else in a, a little bit of a... Um, just a one <laughs> final thing about the dumping of the episodes, by the way, that Jungle Boogie on IRC asked about, which is that it does make it more convenient. You can watch something that's timely when you're going on trains and planes, which is a lot of my use. And Jamie, yeah. a lot of... Um, when people first start talking about mobile, they were talking about, well, does it work on mobile? Does it work on mobile devices? The question isn't the device. It's the question of the question about mobile is where you are. So yeah. the ubiquity, having your phone with you, and my phone's big enough to watch. I watch movies on it. I mean, it's 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 a five and a half screen and it's fine mm-hmm. for me. I'm happy with it on a train. So the binge watching aspect, it isn't so much binge as just having the collection. Of course, obviously, I could just wait a season or whatever and grab the torrent <laughs> that has the whole collection 
same thing. It's just a yeah. question of being timely. Anyway, I'm going to yeah. let you have the last word and remind us it's stealthisshow.com and anything else you want to mention, um, go ahead. Uh, sure. Uh, yeah, stealthisshow.com uh, and the, the, the new the latest episode, which is uh, episode three, I think, of season two, uh, where we've kind of broadened out the focus a bit. So we're no longer looking just at, you know, quote unquote piracy and sort of practices around piracy. Now we're looking at how peer-to-peer is affecting society across Across the board. So, what are the promises and perils of peer-to-peer? What's what's uh, and 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 so we'll be we'll be bringing in a whole bunch of people around technologies like uh, Bitcoin, blockchain, other aspects of peer-to-peer. And so we've got two guys on the next show talking about yeah rewarding artists with Bitcoin. Um, and uh, that'll be out mo- Monday or Tuesday. So okay. I ho- hope anybody who's interested will uh, tune in, turn on, uh, <laughs> and drop and, out. Yeah, and, and, and then sign up. To the mailing list okay well i will definitely be there sign up i'll definitely be there and we need you know uh, when we we need to do a thing about bitcoin one of these days and when we do we have a bunch of people who are interested in that when we do maybe we get you back on at any rate uh i i do i'm very very pleased to have discovered the podcast and i'm glad that you were able to make it today and i do sincerely invite you to join us again any other time you'd like uh on any topic so when you if you see a topic go by that you think you contribute to by all means ping me or i'll ping you either way yeah okay. yeah sure that would be great thanks for having me appreciate it thank you again jimmy we're gonna stop the broadcast and i don't see tim Penn, and i was wanting to get into p2p uh cdns because i don't understand how that could be a thing uh, <laughs> he'll tell us about that next time i guess because he's i see an empty room let me show the empty room here's tim's room you can see the starway stars that's an iot thing that he does and they are blinking but no one is controlling them anyway so we're off the air now Well, we're going to be in two seconds when I hit this stop, okay? (laughs) So thanks again, Jamie, and we will see you all next week. We're going to go to the Mature Audiences Only segment right about now. Hey, that was the bleeding edge of the IP communications and VoIP community. We're at VUC.me on the web. Thanks to Simwood.com, who can turn you as a developer into a telco. Our hosted PBX is provided by OnSIP.com. The site at VUC.me is on Bluehost.com. We use ZipDX.com for our wideband, full-featured conference bridge. And our local rate dial-ins are from Voxbone.com. Every Friday, 12 noon Eastern Time, see you next week. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.